It's good to see you. I'll give you a reminder uh, out of that video, but you can turn your Bibles to John chapter 7. So you can be turning even while you're listening to me give this reminder. We have made it our habit over the last several years to host uh, for an organization called Feed My Starving Children, a mobile pack event. And we have that coming up this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, November 15th through the 17th. And we wanted to remind you about it. We'd love for you to sign up for a time slot. The uh, meals that we pack will go to children all over the world. We'll help fight against malnutrition, and so we'd love for you to be a part of that. One of our favorite things about this opportunity is that it's not just that we get to serve others, but we get to engage one of our values, which is we love to serve together across generations. We love the idea of being a church of multiple generations, and we work really hard to be a church that engages across those generations, and this is one of those service opportunities where you don't have to be an adult to do it. You can be a kid, you can be an adult, you can be anywhere in between. I don't know what's in between, but you can be in between those things. And you can serve together. So we'd encourage you, grab your life group, grab your family, grab your friends, and come and serve together. You can sign up for a time slot online or out at the desk. You'll see a whole display set up out in the lobby today. You can sign up there for a time slot. If you're not able to come and pack, you can still donate. You can still give. We'd love for you to do that as well. That will help us uh, be able to send more meals. So you can donate. You can sign up, serve together. There's lots of time slots still available. So we'd love for you to do that And uh, let's pray together now then as we go to God's word. So Lord Jesus, we've just sung of your worth. What a fitting song to sing as we turn to your word. That you are the one who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. The one who's able to open the scroll, the seals on that scroll in Revelation chapter 5 that we see. You're the one. You're the one who's able to usher us into eternity of life. You're the one who's able to overcome death. And so I pray today, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to hear your authoritative voice, that we'd recognize your voice when you speak. Thank you that you told us that your sheep will know your voice. And we want to learn more about how. So thank you for teaching us and instructing us in your word. Would you make me faithful to that word now so that your people might be well fed? We would receive from you. That would be our desire. Holy Spirit, come and teach and instruct us. It's you that we need and it's you that we love. Shape our loves, our affections today. Not just our minds. Shape what we love, that we might love you more dearly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I had you turn to John chapter 7. If you remember last week, we've been going through this series, the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 6, we learned that Jesus is the bread of what? Life, fantastic, good. So you guys were here, some of you, and so you remember that Jesus is the bread of life and he spoke to us about what that meant and that he is the sustaining strength and and force. He's the only thing that can truly satisfy us and so we meditated on that last week together and now we turn to John chapter seven and this chapter is really about the authority of Jesus. So we come to a place in the story of the gospel of Jesus' ministry where people are questioning his authority. Who are you? And, and who gives you the authority to do the things that you do? And so Jesus is going to talk about his authority because he comes from the Father. So his origin is a reason for his authority. He's going to talk about the fact that he's able to go somewhere that no one else can go before him. In other words, he's able to, after he dies, to go to the Father all by himself. No one has to take him there. He can just go because he belongs to the Father and the Father belongs to him. And so his authority because of where he's able to go, not just where he's from, But he also touches in this chapter on the authority of what he has to say. 
the authority of his teaching. And that's what I want us to focus in on today. We could touch on a lot of different things. I'd like us to focus in on the authority of Jesus' word for us. We hear a lot in church life together when we're praying together, when we're doing classes and all these sorts of things. A a desire comes up a lot. We hear from you all. I would love to know when I'm hearing God's voice. I would love to know how and when God is leading me. Have you felt that before? This sense of, I've got these choices to make, these tough choices. I don't always know what to do. And I want to learn to discern what God's voice is like. And this chapter lends itself to help us think about that reality. How do you recognize the voice of Jesus when he speaks to you? One, I want you to be to rest assured, we're going to get a couple chapters later in John chapter 10, and Jesus is going to give us this wonderful promise where he's going to say, my sheep hear my voice, and they know my voice, and they won't follow another. Is that a really good assurance to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that he will enable you to know his voice? You don't have to sort of panic about it and wonder if you'll be able to hear it. He's promised that you will, and he's promised that he'll guide you in such a way that you'll know his voice, and that you'll follow him, and you won't follow another. And that's a promise to cling to. But even before that, in John chapter 7, he's going to give us a little substance as to how we can know and recognize his voice. Now, the chapter is only one chapter, and there's a lot more in the scriptures about how we hear Jesus' voice. First and foremost among them, knowing God's word, right? Things like setting aside seasons for prayer, not being so busy in life that there's no time for extended prayer, The discipline of fasting and waiting on the Lord and listening to the Lord and going before him with your your challenges and your problems. These are all ways that we begin to develop an ability to hear his voice, okay? So we're not gonna be able to touch on all that today. We're just gonna focus on what John 7 gives us today about hearing Jesus' voice. Now, when I think about what John 7 teaches, I thought about uh, Tim Keller. He's a preacher in New York, pastor in New York. And I love what he says in thinking about revival. You know, throughout the history of the church, there have been these seasons where God's spirit seems to have manifested itself in uniquely powerful ways. And usually what happens is large groups of people are drawn to repentance and many, many people come to faith. They're, that's what we call revival, these seasons of revival. And I love what Dr. Keller says about revival because, you know, Church leaders like myself and and just followers of Jesus ask the question a lot, like how can we have revival? We want revival. We pray for revival. We want more people to turn in repentance towards Jesus and we want more life in Christ in ourselves. And so what would it look like to have revival? And Tim always points to the story of Elijah in the Old Testament and the prophets of Baal when he's thinking about, well, how does revival come about? And the best we can figure is that one, you can't force revival to come but you can prepare yourself for it to come. And so he thinks about uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah, if you know this story, if you don't, let me kind of catch you up a little bit. Uh, Elijah has a lot of people in the nation who have forsaken the true God and they're following these prophets of Baal and the king and the queen of Israel are not worshiping the true God. And so Elijah has kind of a showdown with the prophets of Baal where he says, let's make some altars And let's call down fire and let's see whose God consumes the offering with fire from heaven and then we'll know who the true God is. And you probably recognize that at the end of the story, whose God has proven to be the true God, the God of Elijah, right? But in the story, what's so interesting is what Elijah does, he can't make the fire come from heaven, but what can he do? He can prepare the altar. And so he prepares the altar with great care. He sets up the stones, he carves it out. He actually goes above and beyond to make it even more difficult by pouring water on the offering, right? He puts the sacrifice on the altar and prepares it and then he calls for God to pour down fire from heaven. 
And what Dr. Keller says about that is revival's kind of like that. We can't make the fire come down out of heaven, but what we can do is prepare the altar. And I think the same thing applies to the idea of hearing Jesus' voice. We can't make him speak. He's not a dog who speaks on command when we say, speak. That's not how Jesus works. But what we can do is prepare the altar of our hearts and our lives to be ready to hear from him. So that when he does speak, we're ready. Does that make sense? So if we want to hear Jesus' voice, if we want to recognize his voice, John 7 is going to give us some great ideas about how that comes about. How we prepare the altar of our hearts and our lives so that we are ready to recognize the voice of Jesus. So let's touch on There's four of them that I see in John chapter 7 verses one through 39, and we're just gonna take it in pieces. So look with me at the first 10 verses. Here's the first thing that we see about preparing the altar of our hearts and lives to recognize the voice of Jesus. The first thing we need to know is that Jesus does not change in order to win those who don't want him. And I'll tell you why that's important. But look at verses one through 10. In uh, chapter seven, beginning in verse one, it says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Okay, so pause there. Here's our context. Let me give you a little bit of context. The Feast of Booze that you heard referenced there is a feast that celebrates the harvest. So the harvest has been brought in. The people are now celebrating this reality and they would make all these booths. But the important thing to know about this festival or this feast is that it would cause a lot of people to go to Jerusalem to celebrate it. And so Jesus is in Galilee, the north part of the country, and his brother's saying to him, you should go where? To Jerusalem, right? Because... If you want to sort of be one of the religious leaders of the day, if you want to have voice and authority, which it kind of seems like you might want to have based on some of the things you've been doing, we've been watching you, then you should probably go to where all the people are and show off your religious wares. You should show up and gather a crowd and show them how great you are. Look, if you want to do this kind of thing, this is the place you go. Right? It's kind of like saying if you want to make it in theater, you go to where? New York, right? You go to Broadway, This is the Broadway of the day. If you want to be the religious man, then you need to head to Jerusalem. And it says, after they tell him to do this, it says, because what? They didn't even believe in him. They're kind of saying, hey, Jesus, why don't you go and sort of prove yourself and show yourself? Go to the big city with the bright lights. Don't hang out here in Galilee back where there's really kind of nobody and nothing. We're we're kind of country bumpkins back here in Galilee, Right, You need to go to the big city and show off the kind of stuff that you're doing. Now remember what's just happened before this, because this is the other thing you might forget since we, you know, it was all, all the way last week, so I'm sure, right? We might not remember. What happened when Jesus said to people in John chapter 6, you need to, if you want to sort of be with me, follow me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood, which is don't freak out. It's just a metaphor for believe in him, okay? 
But the people freaked out when they heard this, and what happened? They left. Hundreds and hundreds of followers, it seems like. I mean, it says basically almost everybody at the end of John chapter 6 leaves. And he turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go too? And we get that great profession, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? So the 12 stick, but he's just lost a huge crowd of people who proved not be followers but fans. And so his brothers are looking and going, dude, this is not going well for you. Like they've left. And religious leaders, they need followers. They need a crowd. So why don't you go to Jerusalem? The Feast of Booths is happening. There's lots of people there. You can go show off some miracles. And then you know what? Everyone will want to follow you again. You should do that. And what does Jesus say? He says, my time is not yet come. Now, the best way to understand this moment here is that Jesus is essentially saying to them, they're saying, you should go up. In other words, you should go up in this way. And Jesus ends up going up, even though he tells them he's not going to go to Jerusalem, because he says, essentially to them, I'm not going in the way that you think I need to go. You go, and then he goes in his own way. In other words, Jesus will not have it dictated to him how he will approach his mission. Jesus is not in the business of gathering large groups of followers just to have large groups of followers. Jesus is in the business of being faithful to the Father at every moment of his life. He is in the business of doing exactly what God wants him to do at every moment of every day, every hour. And so he discerns what the Father wants and he follows it. Whether that means the crowd goes away or whether it means a crowd is drawn. He is not in the business of saying things to get a large crowd around him. Now, what does that teach us then about recognizing Jesus' voice? Let's get to the kind of point here. What does that teach us then about hearing Jesus' voice, recognizing it? Well, one, it teaches us this. He will not contradict himself as he speaks to us over the course of our lives. See, Jesus isn't going to change his message in order to get people to feel appeased and to like what he has to say. That's kind of what's going on here in John chapter 7. And the same thing is still true about Jesus. Do you know that? Jesus will not change what he says in order to appease you or me. But the great thing about a Jesus who does not just change what he says based upon the context so that people like him more and more people want to follow him so he can be superstar Jesus, the great thing about that Jesus is that you can know that he will always speak consistently to you throughout the course of your entire life. Jesus will never contradict himself as you hear his voice from moment one to moment last throughout the course of your life. It means that you can learn to expect Jesus to speak consistently to you. I love that. What if you viewed your whole life as one conversation with Jesus? And knowing throughout the course of that entire conversation, Jesus would never say anything that contradicted something he had said before. Now we know this is primarily true according to his word, that he's never gonna contradict something he's already revealed in his word. Yes, church? That's one of the key things to understanding and hearing the voice of Jesus and recognizing is know his word. I mean, it's a little silly to say, could you tell me something that you've already written down for me? Right? He's saying, I've written it down, I've told you, this is my voice, I'm speaking to you. So know his word, treasure his word, hide his word in your heart that you might not sin against him. Memorize it. 
know it, love it, treasure it. But even as you do that, there are still things that the word does not, and circumstances will encounter in life, right, that the word doesn't give a specific answer to. You've encountered these moments. So you take biblical principles and you try and apply them, but you also know, Lord, I need you to guide me. I need you to direct me. I want to recognize your voice in this. And as you do that, one of the things that I'd encourage you to remember is that as Jesus guides you, he may move you in different ways and along different paths throughout the course of your life, but he will not contradict himself from one moment to the next. And that's an important principle to remember as you listen to the voice of Jesus. The other thing that I think is really encouraging and about that is this, is that learning to recognize the voice of Jesus means knowing that Jesus is not trying to hide his voice from you. And if he's not trying to hide his voice from you, then often what you'll find is that there's a consistency in the way he will speak to you, in the way he will guide you through his spirit. I have found throughout the course of my life that Jesus is often very consistent when I know something is coming from him versus just coming from my own mind, my own heart. There are markers of that that seem to be very consistent in the way that he does it. And the reason that's the case is because he's merciful, because he wants me to hear him, and because he wants me to obey. And he doesn't want to make it a mystery to me. Right? My kids know my voice when they hear it. If I'm outside the door and I knock and they're waiting to see if they should let whoever's on the outside of the door in and then I say, hey, it's me. I don't have to say it's dad. I just say it's me and why do they let me in? Because they know my voice. Because my voice is consistent. I don't disguise my voice. I don't start going, it's me. So that they might get real confused and go, well, is it him? I don't know. I mean, dad's kind of a goofball. He's a little silly, but like, should we let him in? I'm not sure. I'm gonna talk in my normal voice so that they're gonna recognize it. And they're gonna know the thing that I should do right now is to open the door. Does that make sense? All right, good. It's good to remember that. All right. Here's the other thing, and I, please remember this. His voice won't ever aim at appeasing us or others. It will always aim at pointing us to God. And here's what, that, here's what that means for us. I mean, just think about this for the life of the church, right? When we think about how things that we have known are orthodox faith, are, are matters of orthodox doctrine for thousands of years, and in the last five years, someone has said, no, those things no longer hold true, and we should do something different. That makes no sense. That's as if saying Jesus was intentionally confusing us for 2,000 years, and now and only now is he gonna really show us what he wants us to do. It doesn't make any sense at all. Orthodoxy is orthodoxy because it's what he has revealed from the beginning. And he wants us to walk in it. And so dismissing things that the church has always known have been historically true. The, the greatest threat right now is one called open theism, which teaches that God does not know the future. Right? And within recent years, there are many church churches and, and leaders and teachers who are beginning to argue that this is a true doctrine. And friends, can I just tell you, it's heresy. It's not true. It contradicts everything God has revealed about himself in Scripture. And it does so in order to appease people who, have a, who are challenged by certain aspects of attributes of God that they can't figure out how to put together. And so they try and deny something that is true about him that he absolutely knows and dictates the future that he is in control of all things at all times, that he's sovereign. Any dismissal of that is heresy. It's not scriptural. It's not biblical. 
And a new teaching like that, which is really just an old teaching recycled, oddly enough, right? That kind of happens a lot. But whenever that comes in, the church needs to look and goes, well, what, what, has, what has history told us about the teaching of the church over time? And the church has always held that God is sovereign and knows the future and controls it, which is why we can look at Revelation and go, oh, that's going to come to pass because he will bring it about. So he's not in the interest, not in the business of appeasing people with what he says. He is consistent. Now, the second thing. Thinking about those, how do you recognize Jesus' voice and those who actually speak for him? This is going to get real dangerous as I stand up here, right? Like, how do you recognize those who are actually speaking for Jesus? Well, one of the things this text shows us is that those who speak for him want to know God more than they want to know about God. They want to know God more than they want to know about God. Look at verses 14 through 16. So just a little bit further down. Here's what we find. This is about the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them. Okay, so here's, here's the question. Like, You've never been in the rabbinical schools, Jesus. You've never sort of gone to seminary, Jesus. You've never gotten the sort of stamp of approval of the religious elite of the day, Jesus. How is it that you have such evident authority? And I love that because they're recognizing that he has a weightiness to what he's teaching. Do you see that? They wouldn't ask this question if it wasn't really evident that there's this weight to what he's teaching. And so here's Jesus' answer. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, I want you to think about what that means. What Jesus is saying is, the Father, that's who he's referring to, is the one who sent me. Now, look down at verses 27, uh, no, sorry, 28 and 29. So just skip down a little bit, and it's the same type of conversation. But listen to what Jesus says there. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on, of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now Jesus there is talking about his heavenly origins. He's saying, I, I came from heaven. I'm not an ordinary human being. He's making a pretty big claim there. But here's the thing I want you to get is that what he's saying is my teaching has authority because I am in a unique relationship with the Father. I have a deep, intimate relationship with the Father. And because I have that, you're wondering how do you have this kind of weightiness to your teaching even though you've never sort of been to school. And he says, I have the weightiness to my teaching because I know the Father intimately and deeply and well. And the same thing still holds true. I'm not dismissing the importance of theological study. Look, I spent a pretty good amount of money going to seminary and a lot of time and energy writing papers, and I found it to be incredibly valuable. And it's a, it would be a false dichotomy to say that you don't need to know about God in order to know God. Those two things clearly go hand in hand. But the point is this. When you study, when you're in pursuit of knowledge, it always has to be aimed at knowing God himself intimately and deeply, not just at knowing information about him. When you come here every Sunday, do you come just to learn information about God? I sure hope not. 
I hope you come to encounter the living spirit of God through his word so that you might know and treasure God intimately and deeply yourself. So you might go home and not need me to feed you so that you would go home and be able to feed on the the word of God yourselves and treasure him because the spirit of God lives in you. Do you know this? The Spirit of God lives in you and he feeds you as you go to the Word of God. Now we, we gather together and we learn because it's good to be taught by teachers. That can be a really good thing. God anoints and prescribes some of us to be teachers. But we are not to meant to be the end all be all of your understanding of Scripture. You know that too, right? You are a priesthood, a royal priesthood of believers. You are a people fully capable of taking up the word of God and understanding it and drinking it in and worshiping God as a result. Somebody please say amen to that. Now, here's the thing. The teachers who have authority are like Jesus. They have an intimate relationship with the Father. Not the same kind Jesus has with the Father but they are connected to God intimately and deeply. They want to know him, not just know about him. So in terms of recognizing Jesus' voice through the teachers in our lives, it means that we can expect his voice to come through those who want to know God more than they want to know about God. But how can we recognize teachers who want to know God more than they want to know about God? How can we recognize that kind of teacher, whether it's someone standing up here in a pulpit, whether it's someone in a classroom, whether it's someone that we're looking to to disciple us and instruct us? And by the way, those of you who are instructing and teaching and discipling, can I point you to James chapter 3, verse 1 and remind you that you should tremble a bit when you take up this role because what does James chapter three, verse one say? It says, not many of you should become teachers because those who teach will be held to a stricter standard of judgment. Here's the first thing you should recognize in a teacher who has authority because they wanna know God more than they wanna know about God. It's they recognize and treasure their sentness. Did you see Jesus talk about being sent by the Father? And then Jesus is gonna say later, as the Father sent me, so I'm what? Sending you. So any teacher worth their salt recognizes that they are sent by God. And knowing that you're sent by God means knowing you don't have authority in and of yourself. It means the only authority you have is based upon the fact that he has sent you and he has a word to speak and you have to speak that word and not your own words. That's where the authority comes from. It's treasuring and recognizing your sentness. So those of you who function as teachers, you have to know. Here's the thing. It's not this sort of faux humility that kind of aw shucks. There's deep confidence in teachers who know they're sent by God. And deep conviction and not this sort of like, I don't know. It's not weak and mealy-mouthed. It's strong. But it is soaked in humility and soaked in a conviction that the authority is in God's word and not in me and that whatever he would impart. Do you get what I'm saying? Treasure your sentence. That's how you identify, that's one way you identify a teacher who is speaking with the authority of Christ. Because like Christ, he says, I'm sent by the Father. The second thing that we see, look at verse 18. It says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, 
but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, there's that sent thing again, the one who sent him, in him there is no falsehood. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is the one who seeks God's glory in their teaching, not their own glory, is the one who actually has the authority. That's the one who has my voice, right? Is the one who seeks the glory of the Father, not the one who seeks their own glory. And says, in him there is no falsehood. So what he's alluding to there is that there's this growing godliness in the teacher who has the authority of Jesus, who, who is through whom you recognize the voice of Jesus. There should be a growing godliness in that person. So here's the thing. That's, you can't really see that from, you know, from here to there. At least not quickly. My hope as your pastor is that you would say, hope you'll journey with us for 20 years, however long God gives me, to be here as your pastor, I hope that what you'll say is he's much more godly at the end than he was at the beginning. I hope that would be the case. That only, you can only measure that over time. There's, there's no way. And I know there's no way for you all. You, you know, those you sit with who disciple you, like across the breakfast table, you can, know, you can know much more of this than you can the person who stands up here. But here's the thing that I think primarily the person who, through whom, you should recognize the voice of Jesus. You should see in them a, a, an increasing love for God and increasing love for people. And I say that because that's what Jesus said is the first and greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love what? Your neighbor as yourself. The mark of a teacher through whom Jesus is speaking with authority is that they love the people they're speaking to. Love the people they're speaking to. I think those are two marks. There should be a growing humility. I remember listening to a teacher. And, you know, you've got to give grace to this, right? Because everyone makes mistakes. But I remember listening to a teacher who at one time was very popular and over time has proven to have left behind Orthodox Christianity. And I remember... He was in the midst of the thing I was listening to, and man, it was rich. There was a lot of good stuff. And then he kind of paused to make a big deal out of the fact that he wasn't speaking from any notes. And it just seems, it seemed kind of self-congratulatory to me. And I just kind of went, that seems weird. That seems so odd. But you know, you, you give grace to that. You give grace. You don't go, well, okay. But then over time, you see more of that, and you go, huh, that seems very much like self-glory seeking and less like seeking the glory of the Father. And over time, what's interesting is what plays out then is what played out in this person's life is that they started teaching things that just are plainly not true according to Scripture. But there was a marker early on of this kind of moments of, of not portraying humility. Now, I say give grace to that. Look, I was in Jordan a couple of months ago and I was preaching and at one point I was talking about all that we have and we have Jesus from Romans 8 and I was so excited and I was talking about one day we're gonna get glorified bodies and I said, some of you are probably thinking that you already have your glorified body. It's just a little joke, right? It's a bad one. Clearly it's a bad one. Afterwards, my sweet wife said, you know the way that came across was as if they were looking at you saying, you, Trent, have already received your glorified body. You're probably thinking that about me is what it sounded like you said, and I just went, oh, Lord, help me. I was like, and then you, it's too late, you can't get back and correct each other. It sounded like I was 
applauding my own physical appearance. It's just awful. And then, you know, this, this happens all the time, right? You go, oh, I just, if I could get the words back, right? So, you know, give grace, but the marker should be growing humility, growing love for God, growing love for people. That's the marker of the person who speaks with the authority of Jesus. Now look at verse 17, because here's kind of the, the real center of it today. If you want to recognize the voice of Jesus, you need to, here's the phrase, you need to will to do God's will. You need to will to do God's will. So verse 17 says this. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, Here's what's taking place. Jesus says here that those who want to do God's will will know that what he is saying is from God because it creates a disposition in them that enables them to see that what he is saying is from God. So the first thing this text teaches us is that wanting to do God's will opens the door to seeing that Jesus perfectly represents God. In fact, that's what he's talking about first and foremost here. He's saying to those around him, look, if you wanna know if my teaching comes from God, then if you were to say, I want to do God's will, if you really wanted God's will, you would recognize that my teaching represents God's will. Because Jesus, what did we see at the beginning of John when we saw that Jesus is the word of God? Do you remember this? John chapter one, Jesus is the word of God. And we said, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is the message of God to the world. He is the perfect embodiment of all that God wants to say to the world. Everything he says, everything he does is the perfect embodiment of God's word, his message to the world. And so when Jesus says, if you, would, if you wanted to do the will of God, then you would recognize that my teaching is from God. So the first thing that we see here is that what Jesus is saying is that wanting to do God's will opens the door to seeing that Jesus is God's representative, that he is God's message to the world. And this is particularly helpful for those of you who are not in Christ. Can I just say that? This is helpful to you if you're not in Christ. Because my presumption is, often those of you who are with us who are not in Christ, you came with a friend or you came because you're, you're at this stage of life where you're kind of curious and you're trying to examine, you're thinking about some things, and we just applaud that. I mean, well done. As you're doing that, one of the things you can know based upon this text is that you should consider saying to God this. Look, God, I want what you want. Or maybe this. <laughs> I want to want what you want. Is that too many wants? Right? If you're not a follower of Jesus, consider saying this to God in your prayers. I want to want what you want. And see what he begins to reveal to you about Christ. Because what Jesus has said here is if you want God's will, then what will happen is you will begin to see that Jesus represents God's will. So begin to say, and, and I think that's a reasonable thing to say. If you're not a follower of Jesus, but you're searching, you're kind of trying to figure things out, you're thinking through things, what a great thing to say. You know what? Whatever, God, whatever your will is, that's what I, would, I would want that. And then begin to see what he'll reveal to you about Jesus. Because my presumption is that his word will hold true and he will be faithful to begin to reveal to you that Jesus is his message to you. Now, there's a message here also for those who are already in Christ. Not just for those who are not in Christ yet, but for those who are in Christ. And it's this. If you want to hear Jesus' voice, you have to first be committed to doing God's will. Do you see that? 
if you want to hear God's voice, if you want to recognize Jesus' voice, part of being prepared, preparing the altar, is, is saying, I want to do God's will, and I'm committed to doing God's will. So that as Jesus speaks to you and reveals truth to you, whether it's through his word or through his spirit speaking to you in your times of prayer, whether it's through a teacher, that you would say, oh, yes, I hear that and I will obey. I want to receive that, right? It's kind of like this. It's similar to this. I was talking with one of my kids a couple weeks ago, and we were having this conversation about something I'd asked them to do, and they, and they didn't want to do it, and, and they were getting frustrated about it. And I said, I just kind of paused everything. I said, let me, let me explain something. As your father, do you believe that I love to give you, like, good gifts? I love to reward you with things. Do you know that? They're like, oh, yeah. Like, you, you love to, you've given us this, and you do that, and da, 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 which is awesome that they actually saw that, Right? Well, like, yeah, like we see that, we see that. And I said, okay, great. So you know I love to do that. But here's what I want you to understand. Like right now, what you choose in this moment, the second I'm done talking, what you choose right now determines whether or not you open the door for me to give you a reward or whether you close the door and won't allow me to give you a reward. If you do one thing, I can't reward that. Can't give anything to that. Do you, do you see why? Like, yeah, I get it. Okay, so like, this is one of those, okay, okay, so what happens? The next words that come out of your mouth will determine whether the door is open or the door is closed. Ready? Go. Yes, sir. Sweet. We're going to Chick-fil-A for lunch. Which is a reward for me too. It's kind of like that, right? We open the door to hearing the voice of Jesus and recognizing it when we commit to do what it is we hear him tell us to do. But when that commitment is not there, when there's no commitment and there's no predisposition in us to say, yeah, whatever is God's will, I want to do it. When that predisposition doesn't exist, we've closed the door to some degree. Now, it's not to say Jesus doesn't ever speak into that, but the thing that we need to acknowledge here is that he's saying, if you will to do God's will, you will recognize my voice. Let's just take him at his word, yes? It's okay. Let's will to do God's will so that we might then hear the voice of Jesus. Now, that's a choice, and it's a choice you have to make before any circumstances arise. You know that, right? You have to make the choice to say, I will to do your will. That means I, when I say I will it, I choose, I choose it. I choose to do your will before any circumstances arise wherein I might choose or not choose. I'm just saying it in advance of any circumstances. I love what Christine Kane says about this when she talks about making hard choices in moments where you know God is kind of leading you, but you're scared, because have you been there before? You're afraid? Yeah, absolutely, I'm, I'm there too. Here's what she says about this, and I love it. She says, I put what I know about God above what I don't know about the future. I put what I know about God above what I don't know about the future. In other words, what she's saying is like, man, I don't know what's gonna happen if I go down this path. And it, it looks scary, but I know God wants me to go down it. What do I have to do in order to take that first step? Because it's scary, it feels like a leap. It feels like I'm falling off a cliff. How do I take that first step? And she says, 
I put what I know about God. In other words, I know he's loving. I know he's good. I know he's faithful. I know he's sent his son for me. I mean, you just keep adding it up. And she just keeps compiling upon one thing, upon another, upon another. She keeps rehearsing all the promises of God and all the goodness of God and all that he's done. She keeps rehearsing all those things. And she says, I'm going to put the weight on all that I know about God more than all that I don't know about what will happen in the future. And that's how you make that choice. That's how you step forward into it into willing God's will. Can I give you another resource on this one too? Uh, It's this. Jonathan Edwards, old Puritan preacher, wrote 70 resolutions. If you want to think about willing God's will, read Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions. It's a little bit old English, but like this is resolution number one. I'll just read it to you. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good. Notice how he doesn't separate those two things. Well, I resolve to do what is most to God's glory and most for my good, profit and pleasure, in all of my duration, in other words, in all of my life, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, in other words, whether I'm young or I'm old, I resolve to do it. Whatever is to God's glory most, and then also by virtue of being to his glory most, also most for my good. Because those two things in Edward's mind are exactly the same thing. I will do that. Resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. In other words, I don't see God's glory and my good, my pleasure, and also my duty, what is required of me as separate things. My duty is also part of God's glory and part of my good. So I will do that as well. And then he says, resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. In other words, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna seek God's glory, my good, and I'm gonna do my duty for as long as God gives me breath, and I'm gonna do it no matter how hard it is to do. Now, that's a really bold thing to say, right? But what is Edwards doing? Why are these called resolutions? Because he's saying, I am resolved. I will to do God's will. I will it. Now, will you fail even though you resolve? Yeah. But if you want to recognize the voice of Jesus, resolve yourself to do God's will before you hear it. Last thing, verse 37 through 39. And this is, we're gonna be short about this because in John 14 and in John 16, we're gonna encounter this really rich, deep teaching about the role of the Holy Spirit. But I just wanna point you to verse 37 through 39 here. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, like I said, there's a lot to be drawn from that about the Spirit, but the one thing I want you to get for today, because we'll revisit this when we get to John 14 and John 16, one thing I want you to get for today is that he's saying that the Spirit is going to be like rivers of living water, not just in you and to you, but flowing where? Out of you. In other words, if you want to recognize Jesus' voice, recognize that whatever he speaks to you will benefit others. It will be like a river of living water flowing out of you. It's not just for you. It doesn't mean everything Jesus says has to immediately be shared. Don't make that mistake. But it does mean that over time it will produce godly fruit for others, not just for yourself. 
it will bring about good, godly fruit. And you learn to recognize that fruit over time. And as you learn to recognize that fruit, you learn to recognize the kinds of things that produce that fruit. And so you learn to recognize Jesus' voice speaking to you because you recognize the kind of thing that produces rivers of living water then flowing out and into others. So that's what we should look for. There's four things there that help us prepare the altar of our hearts and our lives so that Jesus might so we might recognize Jesus' voice as he speaks to us through his word, through teachers, through his spirit within us. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, we love you and we do want to hear you. That's been my prayer for my people this week is I, I want them and I want myself to recognize your voice with greater clarity every day of my life. I want to know your voice. I want them to know your voice as you speak. And I want them to know what's not your voice. They might reject false things and walk in the truth so that they might be free because the truth sets us free. And so I pray that they would, that we together would resolve ourselves to will what you will, to love what you love, to treasure what you treasure. Thank you for the great promise that you've given us, that we, your sheep, will know your voice. So now just help us to live in that. Help us to walk in that. We pray it in Jesus' name.